Hello, and welcome to Dialogues in Dermatology. I'm Dr. Todd Schlesinger, your Editor-in-Chief. We have another exciting podcast for you today. We hope that you enjoy. From their childhood dreams to the most pivotal moments of their careers, the stories of dermatology's most influential leaders will be revealed through a new series of Dialogues in Dermatology podcasts, Titans of Dermatology. Join us as we explore the personal characteristics, emotions, and messages from dermatologists who have made indelible impacts on the field. To help us enhance future Titans of Dermatology episodes, please visit the description section of this podcast to access a short survey. We greatly appreciate your feedback. Thank you so much for joining us for Titans of Dermatology, part of the Dialogues in Dermatology series from the AAD. This is Julia Baltz. I am so excited today to be speaking to Dr. Mary Maloney. She's not only one of my favorite people in medicine, she's one of my favorite people that I know. So this is just such a treat for me. A little background on Dr. Maloney. She graduated from UVM for medical school. She's a true New Englander growing up in Vermont. She did her residency at Dartmouth, after which she went to UCSF for fellowship under the guidance of Dr. Chomovich and Dr. Stegman, both of whom trained under Dr. Fred Mose. So essentially, Mary is the granddaughter of Fred Mose. She then went on to spend some time back in Vermont at UVM, after which she went to Penn State. She started a Mose Fellowship there before leaving to join faculty at University of Massachusetts in Worcester, where she started a Mose Fellowship and was the founding chair of the Department of Dermatology. Mary has mentored over 20 fellows through her work as a fellowship director. Additionally, she's mentored an untold number of people in dermatology through her work with the AAD to create the leadership program at the AAD. Mary is someone who one would consider a mentor's mentor. She doesn't just inspire the people below her to grow within their own careers. She inspires them to want to continue to help up-and-coming physicians within dermatology. So truly, the people that she mentors are the gift that keeps on giving. So, Mary, welcome. I know a lot of our listeners don't know you as well as I do personally, so I wanted to give you the opportunity to introduce yourself. Well, this is really exciting. I never really quite thought of myself as one of the titans, so I'm a little overwhelmed by that, but I'm really excited to talk to you today in part how I got where I got because it's such a disjointed path and it'll be fun to talk about that. Awesome. So Mary, I just want to start from the beginning here. You grew up in Vermont and you grew up in a large part on Lake Champlain in a resort community that was run by your family. I picture the community of Dirty Dancing, you know, in the Adirondacks, That's what I picture. So tell us a little bit about that upbringing and what that looked like. So that is really a very fun part of my life. Yes, in fact, it is very much like Dirty Dancing. There was employee (laughs) housing and they had parties and there were shows that went on produced by the employees. The guests had hat dances and 
all kinds of things at night, square dancing. Some of the things sound a little weird today, but at the time, <laughs> everyone was so excited about all of these kinds of things. It played bingo twice a week, and uh, there certainly were dances. And it was, was a summer resort, really, from mid-June to mid-October. The hotel was seven miles from the nearest town. And as soon as we went back to school, my mother sort of pulled us out of the resort community. And then we would take the big yellow school bus seven miles into town, and I would have my winter friends. And in the summer, oh, I would have my summer friends, kids that came up and their families would stay at the hotel for two weeks or four weeks, because that was what you did in those days. Again, like dirty dancing, people just came and were there. So it was a, actually a really fun way to grow up. And I can talk Vermont, hey, uh, the kids in the feeding. I have rocked the fields with my neighbor's kids. Rocking the field is a great exercise. You go out and see what rocks have moved to the surface through the winter and you put them on a flatbed truck and then you unload them on the rock walls, which is how rock walls got made and are all over Vermont. I had no idea about that. <laughs> Rocking the fields. It sounds Rocking like it would be something to music, but <laughs> not music. <laughs> And, and I do know how to milk a cow, although I have not done it in some 60 some odd years. So I think and it's I don't a skill. plan to restart it. <laughs> um, that, that was a lot of fun at the time. But uh, we did play in haylofts and things like that. But the time at the hotel was fantastic. Growing up as the owner's children, we were not allowed to compete in any of the things like we couldn't compete in shipwreck night when everybody got dressed up in shipwreck costumes and they danced, but there was a big line that you would get judged for your costume. And we always went in costume, but weren't allowed to win until one special year when my cousin, who's nine months older than I, got someone, Lord knows who, to help us bring a dinghy up and we set it in the middle of the dance floor and we got terribly ripped clothing and you know, an eye patch and a spyglass and we rocked and we spyglassed. And when they announced the winner, we won. And we went up and said, we're not allowed to win. <laughs> and we were told that this was a special case and we'd done so much work we were allowed to win. Uh, yeah, and we had weekly hospitality hour where we would greet all the guests as a family and we would have to stand in line. And we dubbed it hostility hour. Was not what any of us kids wanted to do in the evening. But as we got older, we found many ways to entertain ourselves with this. My cousins and I would stand in line, and one cousin one night just decided that she would say, Hello, I'm radioactive. And then, <laughs> you know, 
and people would shake her hand and say, nice to meet you, without blinking an eye. And um, another night, my cousin who was married, she said, hello, my pet name is Penny, and this is my husband, Peter. And Peter would say, oh, so nice to see you. And this is my wife, Jane. And again, <laughs> only one guest in about a hundred that went through this line, you know, so we had a lot of fun with some of that. As little kids, we would, if a guest set a drink down, we would steal the fruit out of their drink if it was. And one night we got pretty sloshed. <laughs> so it sounds like overall, this is a great way to grow up. Oh, yeah. You just got to say it is a ton of fun. I mean, you have to be careful you couldn't cross boundaries if you didn't like mm -hmm. anyone you couldn't punch them in the nose really because you were supposed to make sure they had a good time and wanted to come back next year so we were a little inhibited on one side but we did have babysitters specifically for ourselves because our parents worked all summer and so my cousin bobby would have a babysitter and my sister jane and i would have a babysitter and then my sister jane outgrew the babysitter before bobby and i did and one night, when, one morning, we, we asked our babysitters if we could tie them up. And they thought, well, they're young. Sure, that sounds like, well, we tied them up and then we ran away. <laughs> and they went home the next day. They quit. <laughs> <laughs> that was, that was my mother was not amused. Not <laughs> in the least. But... <laughs> Yes, I think we were mischievous rather than truly evil, but at least that's my hope. But <laughs> absolutely fantastic. So it sounds like there weren't any doctors in the family. How did you become inspired my great, to go into medicine? My great-grandfather was a doctor. I didn't really? know, mind you, and he graduated right. from Columbia in 1861. Wow. I tried to use that to get into Columbia, but they did not No dice? <laughs> so I got into the University of Vermont, which actually was my first choice. So mm -hmm. I was great. And how did I decide on medicine? I don't know. It just, you know, one day I said, I'm going to be a doctor. And I just was unimaginative enough to continue on that path. You know? Did you feel any hesitancy going into medicine as a female at that time? It's interesting. My parents never let me think that I couldn't do anything I wanted to do. And, and so I didn't realize that it was hard or that women weren't getting into medical school or any of that until I was there. I went to a college that was basically a women's school that had gone co-ed when I first went there and there were 13 men, 13. So, wow. you know, the women were still running stuff. And so I thought you could do anything you wanted to do and off I went. Mm. And how, once you got to medical school, how did you come to realize that things were tougher? And I realized <laughs> that the men were not happy to have me there at all. Mm. Virtually all the physicians were men. The chairman of pediatrics was a wonderful woman, Carol Phillips, I think her name was. But she was incredibly bright and she expected everyone to be as bright as she was. We called her the velvet hatchet. You were sort of 
talking to her and all of a sudden you realized that you were bleeding <laughs> because she sort of cut you down to size. Wow. The men were very clear that they thought that women shouldn't be here to the point that we were not allowed in the doctor's lounge. Now, the male wow. students were allowed in the doctor lounge, but the women were not because the male doctors like to sit around in their underwear and they thought it would be inhibiting to have the women come in. And that was the only place you could get male scrubs, pants to go with your scrubs. So we had to go to the women's locker room and get scrub dresses. One size fits all. And uh, for me, that meant my <laughs> scrub dress was down somewhere just above my ankles. <laughs> so a floor length scrub gown. Scrub gown, yes. You had to get a guy to go in and get you scrubs so that you could wear scrubs. Mm. And when you did OB, the nursing scrubs were pink. And so there you were in your pink ball gown with scrubs down to your ankles, at least for me. And you couldn't shorten them because they had to be put in and come back around. Wow. So we would always get the guys to try and get us scrubs. You know, there was still an awful lot of women's jokes. And one of my classmates always walked out on women's jokes. And the rest of us kind of tolerated it because she got labeled and it made it harder for her. But I did have the wife of a male medical student in my class come up to me and ask me how I could live with myself because I was taking the place of a man who would support his family. Wow. So, yeah, stereotypes were alive and well, and we did feel that we had to be better than or we were going to get really not advanced. I mean, I mean, I could do the same thing that a guy did, and my performance might be good and his was superior. It was just regular. And so it was tough. You really knew there was a glass ceiling. The OB guy residents told me that it would not be good for me to go to into OB because my hands were too small. Oh my. Um, and you know, meet a woman having a baby that wouldn't have appreciated small hands. <laughs> 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 An awful lot of stuff wow. that went on. Mm, absolutely. How many women were in your class? Uh, there were nine. There had been three in the class ahead of me. There were 13 in the class behind me. And then it started to grow pretty exponentially. Wow. But the women supported each other. And that was very clear. Right. Right. Which is a legacy that you have absolutely maintained throughout your career. I'm president of Women's Derm Society, very active within that community. I think as a female physician, you're someone that I look up to and many other women look up to precisely because of this. And it sounds like it started very early in your career. Well, it did. And I think that dermatology has really moved toward equity very rapidly. And, and we know that it's 50% of the residents are, are women now, some years a little more than 50%. It is not the case, however, in all of general medicine, that glass ceiling is still there. And strangely enough, pay scales are still different in much of medicine. They weren't in my department when I was chair, but it does go across medicine that women still earn less than men doing the same job, not accounting for part-time. And so right. we do have to pay attention to that glass ceiling and make sure 
And we still, again, dermatology is leading as far as the number of chairs that are women. We certainly aren't at equity with men yet, but we far outclass many of the chairs for other, other subspecialties. And so it, it is still kind of shocking. Mm, absolutely. So more on that theme, tell us a little bit about your experiences as a fellow working. I mean, if we talk about women in medicine, at this time, you were, you're one of the first women to complete a Mohs surgery fellowship. You're working with all men, Tromovich, Stegman, who my understanding is you knew Fred Mohs very well. So what was that experience like? It was actually pretty good. I went to San Francisco and worked with Ted Tromovich, Sam Stegman, who had been together, had really worked to develop the fresh tissue technique of Mohs and get away from the fixative. And they were the first to publish on it and really took it to a method where you could complete Mohs in a single day or a half day or a few hours. And Rick Logau had joined them. And so the three of them were really key in my training. The Mohs College was much, much smaller. And so 250 people would be at the Mohs meeting and Fred Mohs would stand up and comment on every paper that was presented and would give people his take on it. And when I presented my first paper, Fred found me in the evening reception to tell me how much he had enjoyed my paper and he hoped that I would continue to present at the meeting and I would continue to write and move Mo's forward. And that was a time when we were graduating 13 or 14, maybe 15 Mo's fellows every year. And Dr. Mose would figure out who we were when we graduated and greet us by name and would continue to know who we were and was very embracing of people and of everyone. So I never felt any discrimination by him at all for any uh, man, woman, anything. Um, and Sam and, and Ted and Rick were very open and affirming too. And I didn't think of them in any way um, as uh, seeing any difference. In fact, mm -hmm. I arrived the first day and am greeted warmly by the guys. And it was, I can't remember whether it was Sam or Ted. I guess I think maybe it was Sam. And got a little tour of the unit, and the Mohs unit was very small. There were two surgical units and a lab, and, and then the microscope room, which was just down the corridor. And I was told, well, this was where we changed into our scrubs, and the scrubs were over here in a pile. And so, you know, I clearly needed small scrubs, and here were the small scrubs. And then, you know, he took off his shirt and put his scrub top on, and kind of looked at him and went, okay. <laughs> and I put my shirt off and put my scrub top on and off we went. <laughs> and, and he said later to me, and I don't know, it may have been the next day, you know, it's clear you're going to fit right in. I was so comfortable changing in the same room with you. <laughs> today, it really wouldn't be that. 
but I, you know, he hadn't shown me the, the bathroom, so there was no place else to go. Right. And it was just the way it was. And there was one day that I thought that I would be thrown out of fellowship. There was an ENT resident, a nice guy, Fred Fedak, who, and we were both working with him that day and we were closing a patient and I don't know, we were joking around and we shouldn't have been. Um, and Sam needed to go to his office to see a patient and we just had to finish up the closure. And so he felt comfortable leaving us and yet he t looked back in and we were not being serious. And he felt that we were being disrespectful of the patient. And he walked back in and put on gloves again and said, we'll have a little decorum in here. Oh. Oops. And after the patient was sewn up, he took us aside and he said, I expect you not to have a great deal of humor as you are there performing your procedures. And I'm like, oh my God, he's going to throw me out tomorrow. I'm just going to be done. <laughs> And he stalked out and, you know, the next day I go in and, I, you know, I'm groveling. Sam, I'm so sorry. I never, he said, it's over and done with. I told you how I felt. It's done. And I'm like, <laughs> a little wilty and oh, I can't believe that I got off with that. And he was convinced. The one thing he did say to me was that women had a tendency to go off and to become part-time, and he hoped I wouldn't do that. And at our graduation, he put his hands on my shoulders and said, I feel sure that Mary is not going to go off and get pregnant and just leave the specialty. She's going to add something special. And I'm sitting there, and I'm 10 weeks pregnant. <laughs> <laughs> And so I say, oh, of course not, Sam. <laughs> oh, my gosh. The timing of that. The timing of that was hilarious. But I got back to the University of Vermont, and this was my first job, and immediately went to benefits and said, you know, what's your benefit if I were pregnant? And well, if you were pregnant, you could take two weeks of sick leave and use your vacation time. And he laughed. They say, but of course you're not pregnant. I'm like, of course I'm not. <laughs> so I had six weeks of maternity leave using wow. all of my vacation and all of my sick time. Hmm. And it got a little more generous on a yearly basis. So my second, I got seven weeks and my third, I got eight weeks. So I'm still sort of in culture shock that people get 12 weeks of paid leave and then another bunch of weeks of unpaid leave. It wasn't the culture then, but the culture changed pretty quickly because I was really, again, on that cusp of just entering the job market when it hadn't changed and then watching it change as, as it needed to, of course. Mm. Yeah. What was that like raising a young family, establishing your career, establishing fellowships? You know, I sort of was oblivious to the fact that it was pretty hard. I mean, I didn't kind of recognize it till the kids got old enough to be caring for themselves and not constantly mommy this and mommy that. And then I go sort of went, wow, how did I ever get through that? And I think that you just kind of put your nose down and, and you went forward and you 
did things at strange times of the day. I took Beth at four weeks in my arms to a meeting in Washington, flying from Burlington to Washington with an infant in my arms. And she was very quiet during the meeting, and <laughs> which was good. <laughs> and then took her home again. And I remember I was helping Stan Miller and I were editing uh, the volume of Cutaneous Oncology, which was really a lot of fun to do. And I was getting page proofs to edit or and manuscripts to edit and then page proofs to proofread. And I just never had seemed to have enough time to get that done. And so one day we went to church with all the kids and I pull my page proofs out during the, the anthem singing. And, and my husband says, stop that. It's inappropriate. <laughs> oh, I don't really like this music anyway. <laughs> it's an hour of focused time, you know? An hour of, of time when I can multitask, you know, mm-hmm. I, I pray and read at the same time. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, at one point, one of my kids, when she was 18, Katie, said to me, maybe she was in college, I guess she was in college, and she said, when I have children, I'm going to be a stay-at-home mother. Hmm. You know, and I'm pulling the knife out of my chest. Exactly, exactly. I think that's wonderful, dear. And of course, she got to medicine slowly. First, she applied to law school and then got in and then with then decided she wasn't going and withdrew and went back and picked up her science courses and then went into medicine and had her first baby when she was in medical school. And so did the exact same multitasking that I had done. And I got to say, some of this sucks, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> And she she has walked the same path. So what goes around comes around. Absolutely. And the highest form of flattery, right? I mean, she's showing you and telling you that. Yes, I could not get her to be a dermatologist, but I'm extraordinarily proud of her for being a pediatric geneticist. I think it means it. She is a one very smart lady. Smart, smart person. So, Mary, I want to talk a little bit before we close about your experience founding a department. So, I know taking the division of dermatology to a department of dermatology was a huge undertaking, took many years, something you pulled off that has made our department so much stronger. So, what did that look like? Oh, you're absolutely right. It just took years and years. And it was When I first became division chief, it was one of the things that I said that I wanted to accomplish. And we just kept getting stymied. It isn't the right time. One thing after another. In fact, I had the support of the president of the hospital and in the long run had the support of the Department of Medicine chair who just really did recognize that this was not right. I mean, we were supposed to go to medical grand rounds and we, so we had medical grand rounds and dermatology grand rounds because none of us was treating heart failure or diabetes or, or any of those sorts of things. And I would visit the Dean on a annual or, bi- or semi-annual visit to say, 
we don't have to do a medicine residency. We have to do some internship and many people do medicine, but they can do pediatrics, they can do pathology, they can do anything and still come into dermatology. We don't take the medicine boards. We do a dermatology residency, which is three years after an internship. And we are on a different trajectory. The medicine is not our home. We are pediatric dermatology, surgical dermatology, medical dermatology, cosmetic dermatology. I mean, and I would come up with a sheet and all of these things and literally go through it on an annual basis. And finally, I found that one of the things he threw up the medical school side was that they didn't have money for a package, if you will, because they always give a package, you know, research package and that kind of thing. And I said, okay, make me chair and I won't ask you for a package. Hmm. So they made me interim chair. And after about three years, I said, don't you think this is gone on a little long than interim. And so with a lot of support from a lot of people throughout the university, I became the founding chair, which was a permanent position until I decided that I was time for me to step down and bring somebody new in. Because Mm -hmm. quite honestly, we had acted very much like a department when we were a division. And so it wasn't a change except when you become chair you get to go to more meetings oh (laughs) which actually was very good because we became seen as having a very positive impact on the medical school and the hospital as a whole and we became seen as team players and we became really seen as a partnership. And that changed the image of dermatology, I am convinced, in the entire organization. And I made it very important that we not just act for ourselves, but we see that we were a part of a greater whole and made sure that when a task was to be done, that we were part of doing it to the point that they did, in fact, and well, we ran out of people to be part of the pandemic team. And so they called on the dermatology residents to step up and they worked in the step-down units or in the ICU, but as more as scribes rather than as doing the intake exams or, thank God, intubating somebody. But they found that our residents were some of the best and the brightest and they did the best job and they were the most comfortable and they were the most involved. And so one of the things they said to me afterwards was, we're sorry we didn't call on you earlier. Your residents were just the best that we had. And so we felt very, very proud of that. And I kept saying, what do you want me to do? And they said, just keep doing what you're doing of keeping everything going. So uh, we were very proud of dermatology throughout the pandemic. And I know the residents were proud of themselves and what they did. Absolutely, absolutely. And again, it reinforces our place within the House of Medicine, like you said. I mean, that seat at the table is so important. 
It is. It is desperately important. Hmm. So, Mary, we've covered on so many different things within your your life and your experience. And I want to close by just asking, what are you most proud of? I'm most proud of the work that I've done in leadership. I think that leadership is putting yourself aside and doing what's right for your organization, whatever organization it may be, for the group that you particularly lead and for the individuals that you take to that next level. I truly do believe that we put people further beyond ourselves and what we can do. So boosting people to higher levels than we will ever attain ourselves is the goal of a great leader. I'm proud that leadership has become a buzzword in the house of medicine, but dermatology was there pushing it forward very early on. And we created a leadership institute. We then created leadership training levels. And I guess that brings me to what I am very much the most proud of. I'm most proud of my family, and I will say my birth children, my three children, Katie, John, and Beth, for all that they've done. And then my work family, the people that I have trained, the residents and the fellows have just been the best part of my life. And Mm. I have found out it's not the money you make. That's not why we do the things we do. It's the people we interact with. It's the people that we take care of, our patients. And it is the people we work with, our colleagues, and the people that we train who are going to be uh, the people of the future, the leaders of the future, the caregivers of the future. And I am so proud of everybody, including Julia. (laughs) Well, Mary, that's... So exceptional. I mean, you you truly have given so much to our field. And I feel like you can spot people who you've mentored and trained because they have that same level of, of delight in, in watching people grow and watching people learn. So it's such a gift, such a gift to our specialty. It's so much fun. It really is the reason to get out there. <laughs> Well, thank you so much, Mary. This has been an absolute pleasure. I feel like we could just talk for hours and would love to, but at this point, we will wrap things up. Again, thank you so much for joining us for this Titans of Dermatology. I'm so excited for people to get to know you a little bit better. Well, thank uh, you. They might already. Great fun. Awesome. Thanks. We hope you have enjoyed this edition of Dialogues in Dermatology. This is Todd Schlesinger, your Editor-in-Chief. For more podcasts, including bonus issues, check us out online at the website of the American Academy of Dermatology or through the Dialogues in Dermatology app. You can now also sync your subscription to your favorite podcast app. New podcasts are released each week in addition to our monthly JAD podcasts. We hope you enjoy these new options for listening to Dialogues and the increasing content for your listening pleasure. Thank you.